We have all heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. At this point, it's pretty much just a cliche, and you're probably already annoyed at me for saying it, but I really do think that it applies especially to the book we're discussing on episode 107 of SSR. Today, my guest and I are chatting about Karen Cushman's 1994 novel, Catherine Called Birdie, a book whose cover kept me from reading it for far too long when I was a young reader myself. Catherine Called Birdie won a Newbery Honor in 1995. It's a fascinating take on historical fiction for kids and is chock full of things to discuss for adults, and I hate that the cover turned me off. You'll hear us talk more about the whole don't judge a book by its cover thing shortly, but first, a quick refresher on the plot of this book. Catherine Called Birdie is set all the way back in the year 1290 and is written as a diary of a young girl named Catherine, who, yes, is often called Birdie by her loved ones. Catherine is the daughter of an English knight, who spends most of her time tending to the family's flea-infested manor, trying to avoid her father's abuses, dreaming up adventures, and plotting to escape the arranged marriages that her parents are organizing for her. For a long time, she's extremely successful at that last one. As readers, we observe a series of pranks designed to repel all potential suitors, and Catherine actually does repel all of them. Well, at least until an older man she calls Shaggy Beard comes along. He sticks around way longer than you might expect. But is Catherine actually going to have to marry him? For now, all I will say about the ending is that Catherine Cushman wraps up the book with about as happy of an ending as you can get in this very gritty Middle Ages setting. On episode 107, we talk a lot about how this portrayal of the Middle Ages differs so much from other versions we saw growing up. It's like way more brutal. We discuss the way Catherine Called Birdie portrays domestic violence and how kids may or may not internalize it. We spend a lot of time on hot and important 2020 words like agency and consent and how they played into the book much more than we would have expected. We examine the ways in which creators in the 90s tried to depict diversity and consider the ways in which those depictions were often at the expense of the diverse groups being depicted. There's talk of the patriarchy and babysitting and accelerated reader, and we take a stab at some Middle Ages social media metaphors. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, and I'm excited to get into it. Before we go any further, though, let me introduce you to today's guest. Meet Kelly Anakin. Kelly is a writer and comedian based in Oakland, California. She's been the co-host of the podcasts Read All Over and Up Yours Downstairs, both of which I will link to in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 107. You can follow Kelly on all social media platforms at Kelly Anakin to see what she gets up to next. Don't forget to follow SSR on social media to keep up with all of our adventures as well. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR podcast. If you're a big fan of chattier Facebook groups, try searching the SSR podcast community instead. That's a smaller group with a little more book talk and behind the scenes podcast intel. And while we're on the subject of social media, please don't forget what an awesome tool it is for spreading the word about things like, well, SSR. If you're loving this episode and others you've listened to, please post about it on your platform of choice and tag the show so I can see what you have to say. I so appreciate everyone who has used their Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to help more book lovers and pop culture nerds find the podcast. This community is growing, and so much of that is thanks to you. Thank you. You can also keep spreading the SSR love by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, shopping for SSR swag at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, or supporting the show on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows you to support independent creators like myself in exchange for exclusive rewards. You can contribute as little as $1 per month. There are a variety of tiers, and each one is eligible for different rewards, things like newsletters, bonus episodes, free shipping on merch, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash SSR podcast, 
or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for details and next steps. Thanks to all of the Patreon sponsors listening to this episode. Your continued support means the world to me and really does help me keep the show going strong. One more thing. Are you looking for more ways to support independent bookstores in these strange quarantine times? Why not buy your audiobooks through Libro.fm? Libro.fm is a platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks you can get from bigger companies. I'm not going to name names. The audiobooks are the same price, too. You can support any indie you want if they're partnered with Libro.fm, so pick a local favorite or send some love to a store you've dreamed of visiting for years. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Happy listening! Time to get in our time machines and take it all the way back to 1290. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this book. We're talking about Catherine Called Birdie, published in 1994. And I have to say that this book has been on my list for a long time. But I think I originally sent you a few other suggestions And you came back to me and you were like, "Mm, how about Catherine called Birdie? And I was really excited because for some reason it like hadn't been top of mind for a little bit. And I'm so glad you brought it right back to the top of my mind. I am so glad as well. I mean, one of the things I learned revisiting it, I had had, for some reason in my brain, anything that's a Newbery medal or honor book, I'm like, well, that was written in the 60s, which is not true at all. That medal's been around for a while and they award new ones every year. Every year. Every year. But I didn't realize that it was written in 1994, which is actually pretty close to the time that I originally read it. Yeah. Um, I think I was probably 12 or 13 when I read it. And yeah, I was super excited that you wanted to do this book. I have a lot of fond and very vivid memories of the book. And then I revisited it and I was like, Wow. This book is wild. It's wild. And I find that the weird thing about revisiting a book that you have vivid memories of is that you remember the book itself, but then you also have these weird moments of like sense memories where like Mm -hmm. you remember the reading experience in addition to remembering the book. And I just feel like it's this like multi-level kind of mind fuck. At least that's how I feel sometimes. Well, for me, it was very like I remember specifically – the book was recommended and I think probably loaned to me by my middle school best friend, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. I, Shout out to you. Hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> I read it I, and I, I may be mixing it up with The Midwife's Apprentice, which is also by Karen Cushman. Yeah. But I do, I have this very distinct memory of reading one or both of the books in a specific chair for this family that I babysat for for years. And I just, I remember just getting totally sucked into this medieval world, you know, while the kids were, you know, they were, I think it was like, they were watching themselves. Well, it was also like, it was like right when Napster hit. Got it. Um, so like we were listening to a lot of pirated 
comedy sketches and Love all it. kinds of good stuff. You must have been like stuff. the coolest babysitter. I was a pretty cool babysitter. Honestly, some background on me is like I grew up in a very religious um, Catholic, actually, which is great for reading this book because they're super Catholic. Yeah. And so my parents were very restrictive with the content that my brothers and I could consume. And most of the kids that I babysat were where I kind of got my cultural literacy from. Like the first time I saw the movie Clueless, I was babysitting and like technically I was not allowed to watch it because it was PG-13 and I was 12. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, so like I'm babysitting for these kids and like they're who introduced me to like rap music. (laughs) You're like, who's, who's, um, who's mature here? Like who's babysitting who? Like, who's yeah, I mean, no, knowledge it, was really, on who? it was really a skill share. That's yeah, a skill. It's like you were at like a co-working space with your, yeah, basically charges. I was like, hello, please make me cool children. <laughs> uh, and I worked actually through like my mid twenties. I worked with kids. Oh. Um, I like teach them Shakespeare and do other like theater camps and stuff. That's awesome. And they were like, always like keeping me like up on what was, what was hip. Like, pretty much, like, through the Jonas Brothers years. <laughs> so you really have, like, a lot of experience of your own, but also, like, through this babysitting lens. So I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's like, a really cool memory to have any book or really any piece of media tied to. And I love that it's tied mm-hmm. to Catherine Called Birdie for you. Do you have a vivid memory of this book? So my memory of this book is that I was very resistant to reading it for some reason. And I don't know why, because I read everything but I think sometimes like I would see all the kids in my class reading a book and I just like couldn't get there for some reason. I think the cover of this book was hard for me. She looks a lot older than she really is. She looks so much older than she really is. And there's something so remote and off-putting yeah. about what I'm assuming is the contemporaneous version that I'm thinking. I have to read it for the podcast. I got it on my Kindle and they like really like updated that. And it's cool. like this cartoony, like fun, fun version, which actually as an adult, I'm like, eh, I kind of feel like you need to understand how rough it's going to get in here. Wait, I'm yes, telling that you, one. So she's so serious too in the original and it cover. Fully, it fully took me until I was like looking at the different covers and I did not realize there was like this bucket that she was right. going to dump on the loot player and it gets completely lost. And yeah. I feel like it's that kind of sense of fun that kids are meant to hook into But that's not what you get. I mean, this looks just like, hey, here's this portrait of this kind of stuffy medieval woman. She doesn't even look like a girl. No, I mean, I know we know how young she is. Yeah, right. I get it. Like I was DMing with somebody who saw that I was reading it and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm obsessed with that book. That cover is bringing back so many memories. And I said, I was like, I don't think I really put together like that. She's she's like essentially like doing a practical joke on this man. Mm which I didn't appreciate at all when I read this. I was probably like nine or 10 when I read it. And I eventually like, you know, had exhausted all of my other library options. And I also, I don't know if you had, um, did you have Accelerated Reader when you were growing yes, up? Yes, we had Accelerated Reader. This was not worth that many points. No, but I think that it was like <laughs> on the list. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, like I should probably like stop reading Babysitter's Club and like keep up with those AR points. So I grabbed it, but I also like, I was looking at the back cover copy and the back cover copy isn't that appealing for kids either. It says, Catherine feels trapped. Her father is determined to marry her off to a rich man, any rich man, no matter how awful. But by wit, trickery, and luck, Catherine manages to send several would-be husbands packing. Then a shaggy-bearded suitor from the north comes to call, by far the oldest, ugliest, most revolting suitor of them all. 
Unfortunately, he is also the richest. Can a sharp-tongued, high-spirited, clever young maiden with a mind of her own actually lose the battle against an ill-mannered, pig-like lord and an unimaginative, greedy toad of a father? Not if Catherine has anything to say about it. And, like, as an adult, I realize that this is, like, a really cool setup, and I have such an appreciation for the fact that she's this, like, burgeoning feminist and, like, all of these things that she represents. But as a kid, I think that's really hard to relate to. That back copy sounds like it's so targeted at a middle school teacher. Totally. It's it's not for children. And I think even as a child, I mean, again, like, I didn't seek this book out. It was recommended to me directly from another kid, which carried a lot more weight yeah. than... I mean, and don't get me wrong, I love to browse the book fair, the library, the bookstore, but it, this is not something that necessarily would have jumped out at me. And I was even a big fan of historical fiction, even at that age. Mm. But like, to me at that age, it would have been more exciting to be like, you know, hey, you're a kid. Here's how kids lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Totally. And I think that's, to me, the enduring value of this book is that it gives you this kind of snapshot. I was like, okay, if I lived at this time, Here's what I would be faced with. I mean, there's so much traumatic stuff in this book. So much. And I genuinely, I don't know if it just didn't hit me at that age, because there are practices in this book where I'm like, oh, some of this is still happening Mm -hmm. all over the world. Like, even in some pockets of the U.S., it's like people are like grooming children to be their spouses. Yeah. So it was really wild as an adult. Like, I don't think it made me like the book any less. I also don't think it made me feel like it was like super inappropriate for children. Although I was like looking on like common sense media at some of the reviews and like there was this enraged grandmother. She just went off and was like, this is for 18 plus. This is insane. Like this child is a blasphemer. (laughs) And I mean, like, yes, she is. And I remember that part of it, having been raised and being a very devout Catholic child, I was like, OMG, how is she scandalous having having these profanities? Right. And I mean, but that was actually the thing that stuck out to me the most was having your own like bespoke profanity um, (laughs) about God, you know, God's thumbs. And even though, cause you know, we were a household is like, we don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. But I was like, this is cool. I was like, everybody in this society is like, well, this is my thing. Like, this is how I take the Lord's name in vain. Right. This is my special sauce of taking the Lord's name in vain as a it's like, this Catholic. Is, yeah. This is my Twitter avatar in this very like primitive agrarian society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love a common sense media perusal for those who don't know. Common Sense Media is this website where, like, I would imagine that if you are a parent and maybe you're a first-time parent and you're, like, not really sure where you come down on, like, showing your kids things with curse words in it or, like, giving your kids a book with sexual content, like, I think in theory it's probably a good place to start about, like, am I even in the right ballpark of, like, this movie or this book or this TV show being the right thing for my kid? But if you don't have a kid and you're like me and you're just, like, kind of interested in media for children and you're looking at it, it's like, wow, people have extremely strong feelings. So that's always kind of a fun place to peruse as you're listening to these SSR episodes. Highly recommend. Um, (laughs) I think what was interesting for me about reading this book now and like thinking about my elementary school self as I would have been when I read this as a kid for the first time, I was obsessed with medieval times. Like I thought it was the coolest thing ever. We had a unit about it in school, and I just became fascinated by it. 
I made my parents take me to a renaissance fair. I hope there are photos somewhere. I haven't seen any, but I feel like somewhere there's a photo of me. Like I had a dress. I had like a flower crown. I was very committed to just like learning everything that I could about the era. But I think that like even in a lot of the nonfiction content that's out there for kids about medieval times, you don't get this perspective. I mean, even as somebody who at the time I felt like very well versed in the history of this period. And I don't think I really had an appreciation when I was a kid reading this book for like what it's really communicating about this era, which we meet Catherine in the year 1290. It's crazy to me that like, it must have offered such a contrasting perspective to everything else that I'd consumed about what I viewed as this like, very glamorous, like very magical time. There's nothing sanitized about this book. No. And I mean, you know, I think you kind of get at the plot, which is that this young girl's father is trying to marry her off. But what it really is, it's this sort of like day-to-day diary of how (laughs) filthy and miserable life was at this time. And you get these grace notes and these kind of moments of joy usually coming from, you know, human connection, or we see, you know, Catherine is an artist, and she's a writer. Um, She's encouraged by her brother, who's a monk who were, you know, they were they were the cultural arbiters of the time. They were the Instagram influencers as we're making these social media parallels. Yeah. Just keep it going. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I'm always here for a very like internet savvy analogy. Um, (laughs) But, you know, she is unique in this society because although I really like the character of her mother and I think she's such an important counterpoint to Catherine because there's like a very different book about a little girl who doesn't question anything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think we see that in Catherine's mother where she got married at 15 and immediately started having children. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing that was so different this time, you know, reading as a kid, you know, and Catherine's like, oh my gosh, my mom's so old. She's like, gotta be over 30. I already I know what this, you're going to say. And I'm so excited. No, but it's like reading, <laughs> reading this book. I'm like, like as a child, I was like, yeah. oh, her parents are so old. They must be like in their fifties. And you're like, doing the these math. parents are my age. Yeah. It's and wild. you get this sense of how much this hard lifestyle ages people. Mm-hmm. And also, like even um, her uncle, who she just idolizes, I'm like, he's like 18, 19. Like, this is not an older man. This is a guy who, if he wasn't related to her, might potentially be a suitor for her. Yeah. And like, and we and we kind of see how that plays out with her friend Alice, right? Who does fall in love with him, and he falls in love with her, and that doesn't work out well for anyone. No. And even even Alice's like kind of like quote unquote happy ending is a side eye and a half. Yeah, I mean I feel like the thing about this world that Catherine's living in is that like even like you said, your happy ending, like your best case scenario is still so far from I think what we as young American children maybe picture to be like this royal, glamorous life of the Middle Ages. And so I think it's important, obviously, that we have books like this so that naive little girls like me don't just think that, like, in the year 1290, all of the ladies were, like, waltzing around in their ball gowns. I mean, Catherine is the daughter of a knight, which I think, at first glance, you think, oh, like, that must be so exciting, and she must have such a cool life. But she literally, like, her job every day is to get fleas out of her mattress. 
that's one of many jobs, but that was the one that really stuck with me. I read this book a couple of weeks ago, and I still am thinking about the fleas in the mattress and how that was just, like, a thing that you did, and it wasn't weird. It was, like, normal, and it grossed her out, but it wasn't anything that other people weren't doing. And again, like, this is a family of some means. Like, they're not the wealthiest. Her dad is sort of positioning her for marriage as an economic prospect, but they still have land. Her dad has some notoriety. It's not as if they are like the poorest villagers. And this is still, these are still the conditions that she's living in. And I think the other thing that's interesting is like, okay, so you've got this girl whose dad is essentially like middle management for the monarchy. Right. Which I think is such a smart choice on Cushman's part because it does kind of counter this thing where we think, oh, old timey people were all princesses, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Although you and I have a very different like, origin story for the middle ages. Cause I, I'm very opposed to not being clean all the time. <laughs> and so like, I was never a Ren fair person. I was like, this is disgusting. I am I mean, not doing this. That's how I am now. But as a kid, I was like, if I can wear a dress and I can wear like ribbons in my hair, like we're good. It's fine. Yeah. If the reality yeah. was that people were like pooping in pots and like throwing mm-hmm. it out the window or whatever else they were doing. It's fine because right now and in 19, literally never bathing, I'm wearing a dress and a flower crown and it's fine. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. It's flowers. It's like really covering up that smell. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is not this glamorous life and we even get to see Catherine, a lot of her sort of, she couches her complaints in like, I wish I was the daughter of, a much more important night or an advisor to the king. And then I could just lounge around and not have to do work because her mom works constantly. Mm -hmm. Her mom is constantly weaving and sewing and creating these disgusting medicines that literally have dung as a primary ingredient. Yeah. I had a huge appreciation for being alive now where we have science (laughs) and it's It's not just sort of like, a dung and a prayer and maybe this will get you better. (laughs) Yeah. But what I do love and why I think it is still an appropriate book for girls who are kind of in that like 12 to 15 ish age. I mean, even younger, I feel like the stuff that you're not going to get as a nine or 10 year old is going to just fly completely over your head. Yeah. I missed Um, everything about this book because I was probably nine or 10 and I missed, I I would say at least like 65% of it. I miss completely. So it's her brother that she hates. Is that Thomas? I believe so. Yeah. He's there's um, only one that she really loves. And then there's one that she really hates. And then I feel like the third is kind of, iffy. or maybe it's Robert. There's like Robert, Thomas and Edward, right? Robert's the knight. He's the one who marries a 12 year old, uh, who then dies later on in the book during childbirth. Yeah, Very upsetting. And then Thomas is the one who is quote unquote in the King's service. And then Edward is the one that she's closest to. He's the monk. And you referred to him earlier. She actually kind of wants to like run away to the monastery and like kind of do what he's doing because she sees all of these monks that are creating the beautiful books. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking that that was a really cool thing. Like in my study of medieval times, the fact that these monks were like the ones who are actually responsible for like writing things down and making art out of these books. So I definitely connected to that, but she has a very complicated relationship with the other two brothers, mostly Robert. I think the oldest brother, Robert, is the one that she dislikes the most because she's, she's very unhappy at his wedding. pinching her bottom, yeah, it's um, which we can kind of get into the violence in a minute because yeah. I want to talk about actually the violence of childbearing, yeah. which is still, you know, to this day an issue. It's very, very risky, yes. um, comparatively speaking, even now. 
to get pregnant and give birth. Yeah. And I had completely forgotten that her mother almost dies. And, you know, as I said, in a very graphic scene, and it's like, there is nothing to be done about this. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of fact approach in her journals, but it's also, you can feel the devastation Mm -hmm. because Catherine does not really have that many allies in this world. She has Perkin, the goat boy. Um, She has Morwenna, her nurse, who was her mother's nurse before. So there's like a very like generational connection there. But, you know, obviously she and her father are constantly at odds and her father's a very abusive man. Yeah. Uh, Constantly drinking. Yeah. Constantly drinking has no concern for her emotional well-being. I mean, obviously emotional well-being is not a concept at this time. Yeah. They're not worried Uh, about your mental health, self-care. No, they definitely aren't. So when you have this, this moment, and this has also been, this has been Catherine's reprieve. She doesn't have to go marry Shaggy Beard until her mother has delivered her child. Yeah. So it's like this horrible stacking of eventualities. It's like, okay, well, I get to stay here till my mom has her child, but we also know that her mom has had a series of miscarriages. It's been a long time since she's had a child. Catherine is the youngest. And then, you know, she gets very, very ill and there's no guarantee. And she does finally pull through, you know, for no, for no good reason. You know, there's no, there's no intervention that anybody could make to prevent it. It was literally just God's will, the universe's will, but it was just like, okay, a happy accident. She did not die. Yeah. And I think that's something that I definitely wouldn't have appreciated as a kid. I read a couple of books for the podcast. Um, This is one. And then Jacob Have I Loved is another. And there have been a few other books that have these really graphic childbirth scenes, which as an adult, I'm like, wow, that's like kind of intense that those are included in these books for kids. And often they're, they're violent. Like it's rare that it's like a peaceful one because I feel like often if there's mention of childbirth in a book or even like a movie for kids, there's usually like a story around it. Like there's some like family folklore associated with it. And that's definitely what we get in this book. Drama with a capital D. Right. Exactly. And to your point, like just the sheer notion that like it it wouldn't have been that shocking for her not to pull through and there Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been anything really to do if things had gotten even worse than they already were, because it seemed for a while, like while she was actually trying to deliver the baby that she was going to die. And I now like have a few friends that are pregnant or who have had babies or are considering having babies. And I think so many of us, and this is coming from a place of privilege, which I of course have to note because it's a much different situation for women who are not socioeconomically privileged. Black women do not have this privilege often either. White women, women of means, can sort of take for granted the fact that even if things get scary or even if there is a little bit of drama, they'll probably be fine. And I think Mm -hmm. even though the notion of childbirth is like scary for people because it's going to hurt more often than not, again, if you're a white woman of means, it's it's probably going to like work out in the end. And reading a book like this, again, this is a white family with some means. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. you were so rolling the dice. And I think like, this is sort of a basic fact of life now. Like women have babies and it was always a basic fact of life. But in 1290, the basic fact of life was that, like, yeah, a woman is going to try to have a baby, but, like, wouldn't be that crazy if she died. 
No, absolutely. And I think actually this is explored. I'm friends with a novelist named Meg Ellison, and she has a trilogy called The Road to Nowhere. You're shaking your head. It sounds like you're familiar. She's a previous um, guest on the podcast, so I'll be sure to that's link. That's right. That's, yeah. actually, that's actually how I found this podcast. Yeah, yeah. she's awesome. Hi, I'll Meg. Link, hey, Meg. I'll link to her <laughs> I mean, episode. That is the, the crux of her trilogy is like, what happens if there's a pandemic that disproportionately affects women and threatens their ability to safely have children. Mm. I won't go into detail. You can read the books, but it's just, it's so fundamental. And I think that's the value for these books that are targeted at young women specifically kind of at that age. You know, if you're uh, a woman with a uterus, you're approaching Menarche, you're going to start menstruating and you're going to be part of this legacy of womanhood. Everybody has kind of a different reaction to it. You know, I'm personally, I'm like, "Mm, not going to have any kids because luckily I have that option. Mm -hmm. To me, there's something beautiful about tying it back. Like even as brutal and horrific as some of these scenes are, it's like, this has been going on for so long. Yeah. And it's like placing yourself in this pantheon. And I think kind of the... The lesson that I drew from it as a kid was like, oh, thank God that's over. But then like going back now as an adult, I'm like, oh, it's not over. Yeah. Because it's very easy to read something like this and be like, oh, you know, we're so much smarter. We're so much better. We're so much more enlightened now. But we're not actually, we haven't moved past this sort of like fixed strip of brutality that runs through humanity. Right. And I think too, I'm of two minds on the sort of inclusion of the group of Jewish people who are in the process of being banished. I because like on the fixed mind too. I'm half Jewish and mm-hmm. my mom's Jewish. So many would say that I am technically Jewish. I was raised with a little bit of both. Um, my dad's mm-hmm. Christian. And I remember reading this book as a kid and thinking it was really interesting that there were a group of Jewish people called out because so often growing up, I felt like I didn't see any Jews in the books that I was reading. And so just the fact that like Catherine is identifying them was sort of interesting to me, but the depiction is like not so great. And I pulled out a couple of lines. Catherine is like very concerned when she sees them because she was raised in this very devout Catholic family. And at that time there was a lot of anti-Semitism and just some of the things that she wrote. There are Jews in our hall. My father being away, my mother let them in. She is not afraid of Jews, but the cook and the kitchen boys have all fled to the barn, so no one will have supper tonight. She goes on to talk about how the food that they made smelled like our food, and I was hungry from hearing of the adventures of Moses, so I ate it. I did not die or turn into a Jew. I think some stories are true, and some stories are just stories. So I think the fact that the Jewish people are introduced and she has this experience with them where she initially has all these judgments and all of this fear about like what spending time with them will like quote unquote do to her. The lesson is ultimately that like what she's heard about people who are different than she is. Those lessons are stupid and like people are people and their food all tastes good. And like nothing's going to happen to you if you try to make friends with other groups. But yeah, I'd love to know more about what you thought about it as an adult. I just kind of wanted to create some context because it's complicated. Like it's great that the lesson is there and that Catherine comes full circle. But I do think that it might be a long shot to expect that every kid is going to understand all of the nuances. And that's something that we come across a lot on the podcast is that like Mm -hmm. a lot of these conversations, a lot of these story arcs are great. Like the way that we see them wrap up as adults is wonderful. And we see that like there's meaning and good in them, but like to expect every kid to see that full journey, I think is, is a little bit unfair. The thing that actually really bugged me here, I think it's difficult 
to know. And again, I haven't read a lot of the books of my youth recently, but it's like, okay, we want to have these stories set in these contexts of the past where a young child is like, oh, actually stereotypes are not true. All people are just people. I think it can be challenging to know. I mean, you can't know if you write anything, how it's going to be received. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I really took issue with is, okay, so we've gotten this introduction to sort of how Jewish people are viewed within society. We've been given the extreme version of prejudice, which is her father obviously would not have allowed this. And you have the staff who are like running off to hide. And then, you know, her mother is at least tolerant. We have no real insight into why she decided to do this. So, you know, it's interesting. And, you know, Catherine sits with the other children and listens to their stories. The Jewish woman telling the story actually switches into English so that Catherine can hear it. And this is sort of the beginning of the problematic part for me, which is that then at the end of the book, Catherine's big aha moment that she will be who she is wherever she is transforms this woman not into a character in her own right, but as the means for Catherine's self-awareness and development. So we have this now trope of this magical other who is, you know, off on the seas and fleeing from their home, you know, just so this, this relatively wealthy white girl can decide that she can accept her crappy life. Yeah. And it feels very nineties. Um, It definitely feels very like what people in the 90s were like, this is diversity. Yeah, we're just like crushing it, you know, like Benetton, Lilith Fair, it's happening. Right. And it just, and I didn't remember that part of it. I couldn't remember how the book ended when I was reading it. Like I remembered that Shaggy Beard died. I remembered him dying of an illness though, not being killed in a tavern brawl over a woman. Classic Shaggy Beard classic shaggy beard, this guy. But I did not remember that she ran away and had this moment. And it's just like, it's so easy for her to not have this realization as the result of this, you know, sort of mysterious person. There's there's so many other sources that she could have gotten that from. And so that was really, that was really my sort of like grimace for the entirety of the book. I was like, oh no, this is not, this is not how it should be. That's a great point, and I appreciate you making it because I actually that slipped my mind that 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 character ended up being like such a part of her personal growth mm-hmm. at the end. And like the bottom line is that no one should like use another person for their own personal development unless that person is like their life coach and they're being paid to do so. <laughs> like that's the exception. There's no moment in like real life in normal humanity where like you should be like, you know what? Like I'm so glad that like viewing your shitty circumstances and how hard your life was like has given me the much needed perspective that like I require to mm-hmm. accept myself. Like unless somebody is being paid to help you with your self-actualization or your realization of like all that you have in life, you, you shouldn't be using them for that. Um, no. and I'm just not, I'm having this kid. really like wonderful imagined circumstance of a medieval life coach. <laughs> um, pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think Catherine really could have used one and um, no, I am so glad you brought that up. And I think, I've been thinking so much recently, like candidly about the different kinds of questions that I want to be asking on this podcast and like the different ways that I want to be examining privilege and and the privilege of the characters that we're reading. Because unfortunately, like the sad fact of the matter is is that there's not a lot of representation in the books Mm -hmm. that we read as kids. And there aren't a lot of books that were written by BIPOC authors. So I think often the key is like really examining the white characters in these books and being like, 
what is their privilege, like really, how is their privilege affecting the way that they're viewing the world or affecting their circumstances? So I think this is a great example of the privilege of a white, probably like middle, upper middle class Catholic girl and and how Mm -hmm. that allows her to like see the world around her. And again, like talk about people as if they exist to like, I don't know, like transform her. And, and they don't, as you mentioned, like this woman was fleeing religious persecution with her family and like, cool. And she cool was like, boy. hold up, hold up. Let me just make sure this little white girl right. is gonna be okay. Right. And like, cool, cool, let me, Catherine. let me go ahead and translate the story into English. Right. It's so that she can like job. get the benefits of Moses. Right. Like totally not her job. I mean, thanks no. Moses for like imparting your wisdom on Catherine. She definitely needed it, but that's not what your job was. You but just also, get your Catherine, children to safety. Catherine could have gotten the wisdom of Moses on her own. Like, well, right. Go find you know the I Old mean? Testament. Like, Yeah. The other thing, as we're kind of talking about non-white characters in this context, we do get some information about the Crusades because her uncle, much younger than I was envisioning, he's been away fighting in the Crusades. And again, we get that sort of like 90s flavor diversity where he's like, oh, this is so pointless. We shouldn't be over there. Why are we fighting this war? Blah, blah, blah. But it's also like, well, like we're not actually like you're not really adding anything to the conversation. And again, it's sort of like and I think it's the case for this book in general. It's like, we're really imposing our contemporary mores on all of these people. Totally. And the likelihood that somebody like Catherine existed is very low. Yeah. I'm not saying that there weren't high spirited people, but it's like, you look at the amount of actual physical abuse she has to take from her father, from people who are like, low-key sexually assaulting her from her older brother who's pinching her bottom which manages to kind of like combine all of this yeah it's just like you would have to be just an unbelievably strong person to come through all of that with a sense of self intact and I think again this just points to the sort of like pointlessness of her needing this other person to kind of co-opt that person's strength. It's like, Catherine, you've been through a lot. You can sit under this tree and have your own enlightenment based on what you've been through. And I think, you know, if I was doing the, the, I'm like, I don't know if you can do a gritty reboot of this because it's already pretty grimy. Yeah. Um, Well, did, did you know that Lena Dunham was trying to do the adaptation? I do because I also did some research and I was like, that makes sense. Makes total um, sense, but she was having trouble getting the funding. And I, I pulled out some information from like the articles about it, where she basically was like, nobody wants to, nobody wants to fund like a gritty PG thirteen medieval movie without a Hollywood ending. And mm-hmm. I think again, it's like picturing myself as a kid. Kids are used to kids and tweens and like young people in general are used to seeing this period of time portrayed in a certain way. And I do think that an adaptation of this movie would fall in a really funky target audience gap because like you can't really make her older because to make her older sort of betrays like what's really shocking about this book, which is that Mm -hmm. she's 12 or 13 years old and like enduring all of this and all of these expectations are on her when she's so young. So you can't really make her older because then you miss the point. But if she's not older, then you can't really have like she's not really then like a sexy heroine. And it, it also becomes, like, extremely offensive and scary. So mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that it would be hard to get this movie made. And at the same time, I, I really want it. I know. It's like, I mean, it's really, it it would be an adaptation for us. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's much less like we can't really make 
the adaptation. And I don't know if this is the case for other people, but for whatever reason, I alluded to my family being very restrictive in what I could consume, but they did not really give a crap about what books I read. Mm-hmm. I could read basically anything. Yeah, I've heard and, that a lot from guests. And, yeah. And even, like, I wouldn't say that my parents were super restrictive, but my dad, like, preferred me to, like, stay away from certain kinds of movies. And I think mm-hmm. I would say he was more traditional than my mom. And he, like, if, if it was a book, he'd never asked, like, what it was. Like, I could be reading, like, Slash First on the beach, and I was, like, 11. And I was, like, mm, I know that you know that I'm not watching any PG-13 movies, but, like, Jessica and Marcus are going to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a very arbitrary rule for a time where my mom wouldn't let me read any Babysitter Club books that had a boy's name in the title. <laughs> very weird. Until one day, she just waltzes in from the library with Marianne Loves Logan. And I'm, like, excuse me, is this just fine now? Can well, we just do this? Well, they're in love. It's love. I honestly (laughs) think she just forgot about her. You know, the woman had four children. She had a lot going on. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You have to respect the specificity of that rule, though. Like, I've talked to her. You know, and I do. I really respect that specificity. And I know it's like she was just trying to protect me. And look, she was successful. Do the end justify the means? Who cares? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I I could read anything. But it's also like you look at the adaptation of something like Game of Thrones, which is actually like, obviously, it's fictional, but it is inspired by events that happened actually hundreds of years after Catherine called Birdie is set, which I also think is fascinating when you look at just like things like the invention of the printing press and how much more quickly information could travel because you have such a long stretch of human history where there's so little innovation because people can't get past subsistence and they can't communicate medieval life hacks to each other. But it's like you look at something like Game of Thrones, which is limited by just the very fact of their child actors aging and they aged everybody up to begin with. But to me, so much of the power of those books was like, Oh, these are children in these horrifying circumstances. But those books again are for adults. Mm -hmm. But I do think as those children aged into adults, it's like you kind of miss. And for me, I'm a big Sansa Stark fangirl. So I'm like, so much of the power of Sansa story is lost by the fact that it's like, Oh, here's a woman who's now obviously like in her mid twenties. Right. But it is just, it's hard to market this kind of thing for kids because like who's you know I mean who knows when we'll all be able to go back out to movie theaters Um, but it's like you know like you're you're home during summer with all your kids and you're like let's go see this disgusting movie with a pretty horrifying ending about an arranged marriage like yay summer fun yeah it would be like Uh, millennial women I think going to see it and I, maybe it'll be good like Hulu situation, like a streaming thing. I think so. And I think, you know, it's not going to function because I think the new um, adaptation of the Babysitter's Club functions as a dual, you know, you can have that dual audience. You can have millennial women who grew up with these books and then you have this sort of newer Gen Z. I don't know who comes after Gen Z um, at this point. Have the sociologists gotten there yet? I feel like they have, like, a really funky name, but I can't remember what it is. I feel like it hasn't been memefied yet, so I won't remember it anyway. Right. We'll wait to get um, the memes, and then we can we'll confirm. Get, we'll get the memes, and then we can decide. But it's like, <laughs> you're intru- like, these are stories, you know, stories about young friend groups. Like, those are evergreen. Stories about a young woman being forced into an arranged marriage is a little bit of a harder sell for a dual audience. Definitely a harder sell. I think we should talk a little bit about her dad because we mentioned him briefly, but he bears more discussion. As we've alluded to, he's extremely abusive. He's essentially drunk all the time. 
And what struck me, I mean, there was a lot that struck me about him as a character because I just didn't appreciate how horrifying he was as a kid. I don't know how, but I think as a kid, you're able to just sort of like read through a lot of it. And it feels almost Disney-esque. Like sometimes I think when I was a kid, I just pictured everything that I read like in animation and that just Mm. sanitized it somehow. But what really struck me in this book was that not only was Catherine made to be the victim of her father's mood swings and his anger and his drunkenness, but she was also responsible for him. Like when he went out and he got drunk with his friends, which was often, she was the one who then had to like figure out a medicine to give him to cure his hangover. And that was just normal. Like she was not only having to deal with the consequences of his behavior, but she also was then like bearing the brunt of fixing it. And I I think, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, the idea of abusive parenting and domestic violence is certainly not a thing of medieval times. It's not isolated to this period of time. But I think that this portrayal of it where a child was was held so responsible for the behavior, Mm -hmm. again, I know this is something that kids deal with today, but there's something about the portrayal of it in this book that felt very unique. And, and striking. The only other book I've ever read that I think really got at this in the same way was The Cat Ate My Gym Suit by Paula Danziger. That was verbal abuse. I went back and I looked because I was like, again, that's kind of been a while, um, but kind of reading and I'm like, wow, that book, that book is a whole other situation. But it's like from that book, I remember two things. I remember that her brother kept filling his teddy bear with orange pits and I remember her father being abusive. Yeah. And two very weird things. But it's just like, oh, here are these two books that kind of exist in parallel where it's like, here's a daughter, very smart, very sensitive. She can see her father being monstrous in a way that her mother cannot. Because in both cases, it's like the cat ate my gym suit, I think is from the 70s. Um, I think like mid to early 70s. And it's like women's rights were not very solid at that point. So it's like, can you open a bank account? Can you get a credit card? Can you get anybody to rent you an apartment by yourself? And again, going all the way back now to 1290 and Catherine called Birdie, it's like there are no options. A woman on her own is unheard of and cannot happen. Like the closest that we get is this widow that her uncle eventually marries who was struck by lightning and has a host of other issues that may or may not actually be connected to that. Right. And still um, her fate is to get married. Like no matter exactly. what, like all roads lead to being married. And it's not because mm-hmm. you're in love with somebody. It's just, it's it's for appearances. It's for status. It's just mm-hmm. because that's the structure that everybody's used to. So she's like, it's hard to even say that she's married in the way that we think of marriage now. Like you have to mm-hmm. put giant quotation marks around the phrase married. Like they're or married several question marks because they live <laughs> together and they like, I don't know if they sleep in the same bed. Like there's just all of these weird nuances to the institution of marriage. It just seems like that was the ultimate destination for pretty much everyone. If you had means, like you just had to figure out how to get married. The other thing that I thought was so weird was the fact that nobody has their own room in the manor house. Yeah. I tried to look look up kind of a contemporaneous floor plan and I could only find like a larger manor than the one that they live in. But they talk about her mother's solarium, which is also the bedroom that her parents would have slept in. And then guests would sleep in there. If they had overflow guests, they would sleep in Catherine's room. But it really is just a situation where everybody in this house is on top of each other. It's like a frat And house. then you have, 
Yeah. And you have even um, the, the young couple who gets married and Catherine gets her problem solving going and is like, hey, why don't they move into Perkins grandmother's cottage? But like Perkin also still lives there, kind of. And it's just like, oh, like there's really not a lot of places to sleep. They're all flea ridden. And I'm just like, just ugh, like the closeness, like I'm a very, um, they call it ambivert, you know, like I can appear very extroverted, but I do need to like go and recharge. And the idea of being never able to get any alone time and have no space, that to me is just like, oh, okay. So, I mean, probably everybody's running around with their anxiety on 12 anyway. Um, and hungry and yeah. tired and hot and mm-hmm. cold and like all of these other just discomforts, constantly eating at them, bad times all around. I mean, and, the, and the fleas literally eating at them. It's so disgusting. Like my, like even my, if my, the thought of my dog having fleas mm-hmm. it freaks me out. And yeah. I, I can't imagine just like fleas being around as part of everyday life. And again, I say this from a place of privilege because I know that like I'm lucky to live in a place that's clean and where these hygiene issues don't exist. So the fact that these are Catherine's living conditions, very upsetting. The fact that she's dealing with this abusive father on top of that. And then the fact that she's spending the whole book basically like trying to defend herself against these potential arranged marriages. We would be remiss if we didn't dive in before we start to wrap up to... (laughs) Just this spirit of hers around the question of marriage and the word that kept coming up for me and it's all over the margins of my book is agency. Like nobody Mm -hmm. else thinks she has agency. Nobody. And she doesn't really, but she believes she has agency. Um, I pulled out a couple of quotes. One of them, this one I think just illustrates like her confidence in sort of manufacturing her own agency where it doesn't really exist in this society. Mm -hmm. She writes, I fear they're planning a match between me and Stephen. I will not. To be part of Shaggy Beard's family and have to eat with him every day. If my father does not drive him away, I will, as I have done the others. Like, she has Mm -hmm. just decided that it doesn't matter what other people think about her limitations. She's going to make her own agency. Like, she's not sure how, but she just sort of has it within herself to, like, not care that others don't see her as her own person and as as frustrating as it is to see that like that like that's just not real unfortunately like she is living in this society where she can't have that agency it is really special to like see a character that just has that built so deeply inside of them and I did not highlight this unfortunately and I cannot remember I think it's actually it's kind of before she runs off and has her her big aha the clouds part moment yeah but there's a point where she's thinking like, oh, actually, I don't have to marry anybody else because if I don't consent to it, like I can't get married. Like you have to stand in front of the priest and say, I will. And I'm not going to do that. Oh, I have that. Yeah. I can. Um, I Because I, I was very taken with that line, too. She says, once I dreamed of a handsome prince on a white horse decked in silks and bells. Now I am offered a smelly, broken toothed old man who drinks too much. I would rather even Alf. But it occurred to me that what actually makes people married is not the church or the priest, but their consent. Their I will, and I do not consent, will never consent, I will not. I cannot be wed without my consent, can I? They cannot bind me with ropes and force my mouth open and closed while my father says in a high voice, I will. I am told this has happened, but even my father could not be so cruel. I will not consent, and there will be no marriage. Amen. 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 And just, like, I feel like consent is a word that we use a lot now specific of course to sexual assault and sexual violence but I love that it's it's in this book so much even even in that paragraph like consent was not a word that 
I know this was kid. this was way before it was quote unquote cool or right. part of the discourse. Right. It's and so amazing. I too was just, I was so struck by it. I was like, oh my gosh. And it's like, it's funny because going back to this, I'm like, I wouldn't necessarily count this as a book that made me a feminist. Mm-hmm. You know, feminist was a dirty word in my house, but it so laid the groundwork. Cause I would say the one that did was The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. which I read when I was 14. Again, another book where I'm like, why did I think that was okay? Yeah, that's snuffy um, the tracks for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, again, like my parents were just not paying attention. I think it's much harder for parents to monitor books yeah. because people watch things much more than they read. And it's just, it's a lot more diffuse, but this is just, it's such an incredible book. And I think we've, we focused on so much of like the really heavy stuff, but there's so much just like, balls to the walls comedy in this. And I mean, just even like the first entry of hers where she's just being so melodramatic dramatic. and preteen and being like, my life is barren. I related to that very hard. I feel like my emotional IQ is like Avril Lavigne anyway. So I was just like, yes, as I push 40, as I push 40, I'm like, yes, (laughs) this is reality. And other things too, is like, I love the detail where she refuses to eat birds. Mm -hmm. And we've been calling her Catherine this whole time, but other people call her birdie because she loves birds. She has all these bird cages in her room, refuses to eat them. I'm like, would she be a vegetarian now? We see her eating pretty much everything else. Yeah. Eels. Wow. Disgusting. Like everything they eat sounds so gross. Yeah. It is just not appealing in any way, but she just like, she won't eat birds, you know, and she's eked out these little sort of like moral triumphs for herself. And I love when she starts um, listing the saints in her diary entries. I was a big life of the saints kid. I kind of think of them as like the expanded universe of Catholicism. Like you've got like the new Testament and the old Testament are kind of like Canon. Right. And then you've got like all these people, all these other people who are like, yeah, we're fans of Jesus. uh, stuff. I think my favorite one, I highlighted this. This was on the 24th day of November, Feast of St. Minver, who threw her comb at the devil. And I'm like, is that the bar for sainthood? And how do we confirm that this is the devil? Did did it work? Did the devil go away? Is it, is it over? The devil? Was it just like Black Philip? And it's down from the VVH. She just like, yeah, of course a goat's going to run from a comb. (laughs) But it's just, and I love it. And she's like, it's, it is plain that men are in charge of making saints. Yeah. I like that. And I've always felt this because it's always like, oh, you know, St. Augustine was a scholar and he brought Christianity to the entire empire. And then with all the women, it's like, oh, some guy wanted to have sex with her. And she's like, no. And then he killed her. And now she's a saint. Right. It's very dispiriting. It's either that or she was like a queen who had a bunch of kids and like converted her heathen husband to being Catholic. Those are kind of like, are you a virgin martyr or did you convince some guy to be a Christian? Right. That's it. Um, That's all you have to do. It's very disheartening. But I just, I did love as a young Catholic and even as an adult Catholic, well, I'm not practicing. I don't want to offend any actual Catholic listeners because we all have opinions. Anyway, <laughs> but it's like as, as an adult, secular Catholic, whatever yeah. you want to call it. But it's like, I have such an appreciation for that because it is so ingrained and, you know, everybody kind of finds their own saint. And then that's their, their whole thing. They're all named for the saint whose day they're born on. And so their birthday and their saint day are the same day. Right. And it's um, like a big deal. Like your saint day is like super significant and your whole family comes to dinner and it just feels like they have feasts every day anyway. So on your, yeah. 
your saint day, it's like extra special. I mean, they didn't have cable. What else are you going to do but have a feast? Feast. Feast and like <laughs> watch your dad and his drunk friends brawl. What did you think about the end? Because the end is, is really interesting. We referred to it a little bit when we were talking about the group of Jewish people and sort of how Catherine really awkwardly like draws her her like own her own like personal growth from their struggle Mm -hmm. um but the conclusion that she ultimately makes because shaggy beard does die in a bar fight basically and she is going to marry his son instead which is like a much better situation he sounds like he could be like kind of handsome and smart and interesting so he's at least younger yeah like we don't know how young again Shaggy Beard could well be, like, 29. Yeah. And have just lived hard. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, these kids, these people were having children as young as, like, 12 or 13. So he's probably, like, I, mid-30s. Shaggy Beard. I remember, as a kid, thinking this was such a glow-up. I was so team Shaggy Beard Jr. Yeah. I was like, yes, this is great. I bet this guy is awesome. Right. But I think it also just spoke to, like, how low my bar was for, like, what's what are good qualities in a partner right like a yes. younger not old like, yes he's young okay <laughs> not scary um, so I remember being way more enthused about it as a child yeah and I think to a kid who has no experience with relationships it feels a lot more significant and then reading it as an adult you're like oh well I hope that works out Right. Um, like still better yeah. than the still better than the alternative. I think Shaggy Beard definitely seemed that he had the capacity for being abusive and generally scary. And it just would definitely it had like there was no chance for that to be a healthy relationship. Whereas at least with no. Steven, like I feel like it could be healthy at the end of the day. It's still an arranged marriage. But like I feel happier for her that it seems safer. What did you think of that realization that she has where like no matter where she is, even if she's married to somebody she doesn't want to be married to, like it's fine because she's always herself. It sort of reminded me of the end of Breakfast at Tiffany's where she's like no matter where where he's like no matter where you go, like you're going to keep running into yourself. And of course that's sort of the negative take on it where in this book, it's a positive take where Catherine's like, it doesn't matter like what I need to do. Like, I'll always be me. I had mixed feelings about it because I was like, yeah, like that's an empowering message. But at the same time, like, and obviously this this would make it inauthentic to the time period. But I'm like, that the, the lesson here isn't that like, it's fine if you have to marry somebody that you don't want to marry because you'll always be you. Like, that, that's not really doing it for me. The lesson should be like... <laughs> you shouldn't have to marry anybody that you don't want to. Yeah. And that's just not true to this time period. But I just had mixed feelings about that being like kind of the big finish. I think when it is, I mean, it's, it's really the true beginning of her spirit being broken. Yeah. You know, she has exhausted every single other possibility for escape that she can think of. And there are not that many. And you know, she's not like, she's not willing to like go on the road and become a sex worker. I don't think she even considers that. I don't know that she's super aware of that. No, Um, she had like a lot of other, she pulled a lot of pranks. Like she tried to get rid of everybody. She tried to get rid of all the suitors. She bargained mm -hmm. with her dad. She tried to run away to sort of like more tame locations. Mm -hmm. She kind of did everything that she, to your point, was aware of. Like, again, I'm sure there are women during this time period who, took different kinds of perhaps more extreme measures to like fully remove themselves from their lives. But she, I think has like sort of run out the clock on everything that she knows to be possible. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I can't do anymore. To me, I think the lesson is unfortunately still very relevant today, which is that we are women living in a male dominated society. And 
in order to stay alive and get some measure of safety, these are the kind of trade-offs that we have to make. We have to kind of buckle down and say, okay, how am I, how am I going to somehow convince myself that this is okay? And how am I going to be able to convince myself in a way that I am comfortable reconvincing myself every single day when I wake up in my flea-ridden bed and just accept the things that are crappy about my life and the position that I'm in, which I think, you know, it's, it's a survival tactic. So I think, you know, if I could sum up what this book is, it's like, here's a story of a young girl struggling to survive. And, you know, we've, we've talked about her privilege and that kind of thing as well, but it's like, how do you survive in this world? And I don't know that at the age that I was, I mean, as I said, I was like, oh, thank God that's over. But now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, I'm still making some of those trade-offs in a very different context. Obviously, I can be my own person. But it's just like, and what I think is a bit funky, like, I don't I don't know how I feel about it because you do get this sort of like deus ex machina of Shaggy Beard dying, which I think as a child could read like, oh, she accepted her fate and then her fate improved, which isn't necessarily how things happen. Obviously, this is fiction. I think especially bookish children are like, this is not how real life works. But you know, there's not there's not a one to one to being like, okay, I accept this less than ideal outcome. And then as a prize, I get this slightly less terrible outcome. I agree. But I also, but again, I'm like, I don't know what the alternative is for the ending to this. Cause it's like our alternative is like, she just has to go marry Shaggy Beard yeah. regardless. And I mean, you know, you don't want to completely depress the middle-aged reader. Um. Okay. I mean, I think, I think Karen Cushman gave us the happiest ending that she could have given mm-hmm. the time period. And I'm sure she, like, she wanted to be true to the characters. She wanted to be true to the setting. And I think she sort of brought Catherine to like the best possible ending she could have in keeping all of those things true. Anything else would have been disingenuous. And I think at least with this ending, Catherine has some hope and that feels good after so many pages of her just being like, I, I feel that as much as I believe that I have agency, like she always kind of was like I, this, I, I know what's coming. Like she kind of mm-hmm. always knew. So I think the ending was as happy as it could have been. On the whole, do you think that the book disappointed you relative to your reading experience as a kid? Or did you love it more? Like, how how do those two experiences compare? I would say they were almost identical. I mean, obviously, I took different things away from it. It's not a book that I read over and over as a child. So I wouldn't put it kind of like up in the pantheon of like my favorite classics. But definitely reading and like this is a vital book. And I think it's an important book. And I'm glad that it's still around. I am too. I actually, um, I recently recorded a Q&A episode for the podcast that is going live later this week as you and I are recording. And one of the questions that a listener asked me was um, what my favorite reread of the year so far was. And my favorite reread of the year so far was Catherine Called Birdie because I think mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. I think it's really important. I think it's really interesting. It gave me a lot to think about. It had me thinking about the nine or 10 year old version of me. It had me thinking about myself at all these different ages and how I would have taken mm-hmm. this in and like how it relates to my current life. So I, I thought it was really fascinating. And I think it's definitely worth a reread for those who are looking to dive back into something that maybe was uh, a part of their childhood. Other than Catherine called Birdie Kelly, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? <laughs> 
Um, what I've been reading lately, if you don't mind a little adult content, I've been reading the Beyond series by Kit Rosha, which okay. is fantastic. Um, if you're looking for a little escapism, um, Aren't we and, all, don't we all need escapism right now? Well, and you know, most I've been realizing as we kind of live through this extremely like drawn out apocalypse, I'm like, mm, reading all this like dystopian apocalyptic fiction. Uh, I can't decide if that's a good or a bad thing for me right now. (laughs) So I've been doing those. I am just about to read So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo, which I'm really excited about. And I've been doing a reread of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comic series. I kind of resisted at the beginning of quarantine, kind of revisiting things. And now I've just been like definitely cycling through some of the old comfort food. It Um, feels good. Yeah, at the beginning, it was like, no, new narratives only. And now I'm like, I'm just going to rewatch Pose. I'm going to reread The Sandman. <laughs> um, all these things are going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I just wise. got my copy of So You Want to Talk About Race in the Mail today. So that's uh, mm-hmm. high on my list as well. But I'll include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes for this episode as well as a link to Catherine Called Birdie, links to your podcasts, Read All Over, Up Yours Downstairs, um, and links to all of your other social media profiles and all the other cool stuff you're doing. So Kelly, it was so fun having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I had such a blast. Thanks for having me on. Good blast from the past. Bye. (laughs) Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. 